A large, tusked boar weighs heavy on Avignon's broad, teenage shoulders, but the weight doesn't bother him. He likes this kind of work. He's been tracking the boar for four days, and now sweat beads are forming on his forehead. It's time to go home, over the other side of the mountain. Avignon has been in the blackened forest for two days now leading up to the kill. The sulfuric burn smell is hardly noticeable anymore, and the vast number of black trees frozen in their shapes has time moving as if minutes or hours. This place can be depressing, and Avignon is reminded why he doesn't hunt here very often. At one point in history, this forest and mountain range were lush and green, but after the destruction left from hundreds of years ago, the mountain is forever scarred, petrified, black and ashy from the last war. Some travel for weeks into the forest and never see one sapling, and very few animals call this forest home. Avenon rests, listening for any sound. Nothing. Hello and welcome back to the History Obscura podcast. That fun little excerpt you just heard was from Book One, Avenon, from Earth's Final Chapter. This book is published by Endless Ink Books, and I've put a lovely little link in the show notes for you so you can follow up on the rest of Avenon's story. Now, let's dive back into the world of Nellie Bly and see what she's up to in the New York Asylum. Better brew a whole pot this time because I'm giving you a few chapters and a nice big chunk of bedtime story. Ten Days in a Madhouse by Nellie Bly Chapter 12 Promenading with Lunatics I shall never forget my first walk. When all the patients had donned the white straw hats, such as bathers wear at Coney Island, I could not but laugh at their comical appearances. I could not distinguish one woman from another. I lost Miss Neville and had to take my hat off and search for her. When we met, we put our hats on and laughed at one another. Two by two, we formed in line, and guarded by the attendants, we went out a back way onto the walks. We had not gone many paces when I saw Proceeding from every walk, long lines of women guarded by nurses. How many there were! Every way I looked I could see them in the queer dresses, comical straw hats and shawls, marching slowly around. I eagerly watched the passing lines and a thrill of horror crept over me at the sight. Vacant eyes and meaningless faces, and their tongues uttered meaningless nonsense. One crowd passed, and I noted by nose as well as eyes that they were fearfully dirty. Who are they? I asked of a patient near me. They are considered the most violent on the island, she replied. They are from the lodge, the first building with the high steps. Some were yelling, some were cursing, others were singing or praying or preaching as the fancy struck them and they made up the most miserable collection of humanity I had ever seen. 
As the din of their passing faded into the distance, there came another sight I can never forget. A long cable rope fastened to wide leather belts, and these belts locked around the waists of 52 women. At the end of the rope was a heavy iron cart, and in it two women, one nursing a sore foot, another screaming at some nurse, saying, You beat me and I shall not forget it. You want to kill me. And then she would sob and cry. The women on the rope, as the patients call it, were each busy on their individual freaks. Some were yelling all the while. One who had blue eyes saw me look at her, and she turned as far as she could, talking and smiling, with that terrible, horrifying look of absolute insanity stamped on her. The doctors might safely judge on her case. The horror of that sight to one who had never been near an insane person before was something unspeakable. God help them, breathed Miss Neville. It's so dreadful I cannot look. On they passed, but for their places to be filled by more. Can you imagine the sight? According to one of the physicians, there are 1,600 insane women on Blackwell's Island. Mad. What can be half so horrible? My heart thrilled with pity when I looked on an old, gray-haired woman talking aimlessly to space. One woman had on a straitjacket, and two women had to drag her along. Crippled, blind, old, young, homely and pretty, one senseless mass of humanity. No fate could be worse. I looked at the pretty lawns, which I had once thought was such a comfort to the poor creatures confined on the island, and laughed at my own notions. What enjoyment is it to them? They are not allowed on the grass. It is only to look at. I saw some patients eagerly and caressingly lift a nut or a colored leaf that had fallen on the path, but they were not permitted to keep them. The nurses would always compel them to throw their little bit of God's comfort away. As I passed a low pavilion, where a crowd of helpless lunatics were confined, I read a motto on the wall, While I live, I hope. The absurdity of it struck me forcibly. I would have liked to put above the gates that opened to the asylum, He who enters here leaveth hope behind. During the walk, I was annoyed a great deal by nurses who had heard my romantic story calling to those in charge of us to ask which one I was. I was pointed out repeatedly. It was not long until the dinner hour arrived and I was so hungry that I felt I could eat anything. The same old story of standing for half and three quarters of an hour in the hall was repeated before we got down to our dinners. The bowls in which we had our tea were now filled with soup, and on a plate was one cold boiled potato and a chunk of beef, which, on investigation, proved to be slightly spoiled. There were no knives or forks, and the patients looked fairly savage as they took the tough beef in their fingers and pulled in opposition to their teeth. Those toothless or with poor teeth could not eat it. One tablespoon was given for the soup and a piece of bread was the final entree. 
butter is never allowed at dinner, nor coffee or tea. Miss Mayard could not eat, and I saw many of the sick ones turn away in disgust. I was getting very weak from the want of food and tried to eat a slice of bread. After the first few bites, hunger asserted itself, and I was able to eat all but the crusts of the one slice. Superintendent Dent went through the sitting room, giving an occasional, How do you do? How are you today? Here and there among the patients. His voice was as cold as the hall, and the patients made no movement to tell him of their sufferings. I asked some of them to tell how they were suffering from the cold and insufficiency of clothing, but they replied that the nurse would beat them if they told. I was never so tired as I grew sitting on those benches. Several of the patients would sit on one foot or sideways to make a change, but they were always reproved and told to sit up straight. If they talked, they were scolded and told to shut up. If they wanted to walk around in order to take the stiffness out of them, they were told to sit down and be still. What, excepting torture, would produce insanity quicker than this treatment? Here is a class of women sent to be cured. I would like the expert physicians who are condemning me for my action, which has proven their ability, to take a perfectly sane and healthy woman, shut her up and make her sit from 6 a.m. until 8 p.m. on straight back benches, do not allow her to talk or move during these hours, give her no reading and let her know nothing of the world or its doings, give her bad food and harsh treatment, and see how long it will take to make her insane. Two months would make her a mental and physical wreck. I have described my first day in the asylum, and as my other nine were exactly the same in the general run of things, it would be tiresome to tell about each. In giving this story, I expect to be contradicted by many who are exposed. I merely tell in common words, without exaggeration, of my life in a madhouse for ten days. The eating was one of the most horrible things. Excepting the first two days after I entered the asylum, there was no salt for the food. The hungry and even famishing women made an attempt to eat the horrible messes. Mustard and vinegar were put on meat and in soup to give it a taste, but it only helped to make it worse. Even that was all consumed after two days, and the patients had to try to choke down fresh fish just boiled in water, without salt, pepper, or butter, mutton, beef, and potatoes without the faintest seasoning. The most insane refused to swallow the food and were threatened with punishment. In our short walks, we passed the kitchen where food was prepared for the nurses and doctors. There we got glimpses of melons and grapes and all kinds of fruits, beautiful white bread and nice meats, and the hungry feeling would be increased tenfold. I spoke to some of the physicians, but it had no effect, and when I was taken away, the food was yet unsalted. My heart ached to see the sick patients grow sicker over the table. I saw Miss Tilly Mayard so suddenly overcome at a bite that she had to rush from the dining room and then got a scolding for doing so. When the patients complained of the food, they were told to shut up, that they would not have as good if they were at home, and that it was too good for charity patients. 
A German girl, Louise, I've forgotten her last name, did not eat for several days, and at last one morning she was missing. From the conversation of the nurses, I found she was suffering from a high fever. Poor thing. She told me she unceasingly prayed for death. I watched the nurses make a patient carry such food as the well ones were refusing up to Louise's room. Think of that stuff for a fever patient. Of course she refused it. Then I saw a nurse, Miss McCartan, go to test her temperature, and she returned with a report of it being some 150 degrees. I smiled at the report, and Miss Group, seeing it, asked me how high my temperature had ever run. I refused to answer. Miss Grady then decided to try her ability. She returned with a report of 99 degrees. Miss Tilly Mayard suffered more than any of us from the cold, and yet she tried to follow my advice to be cheerful and try to keep up for a short time. Superintendent Dent brought in a man to see me. He felt my pulse and my head and examined my tongue. I told them how cold it was and assured them that I did not need medical aid, but that Miss Mayard did, and that they should transfer their attentions to her. They did not answer me and I was pleased to see Miss Mayard leave her place and come forward to them. She spoke to the doctors and told them she was ill, but they paid her no attention. The nurses came and dragged her back to the bench, and after the doctors left, they said, After a while, when you see that the doctors will not notice, you will quit running up to them. Before the doctors left me, I heard one say, I cannot give it in his exact words, that my pulse and eyes were not that of an insane girl. But Superintendent Dent assured him that in cases such as mine, such tests failed. After watching me for a while, he said my face was the brightest he'd ever seen for a lunatic. The nurses had on heavy undergarments and coats, but they refused to give us shawls. Nearly all night long, I listened to a woman cry about the cold and beg for God to let her die. Another one yelled murder at frequent intervals and police at others until my flesh felt creepy. The second morning, after we'd had our endless set for the day, two of the nurses, assisted by some patients, brought the woman in who had begged the night previous for God to take her home. I was not surprised at her prayer. She appeared easily 70 years old, and she was blind. Although the halls were freezing cold, that old woman had no more clothing on than the rest of us, which I have described. When she was brought into the sitting room and placed on the hard bench, she cried, What are you doing with me? I'm so cold. Why can't I stay in bed or have a shawl? And then she would get up and endeavor to feel her way to leave the room. Sometimes the attendants would jerk her back to the bench, and again, they would let her walk and heartlessly laugh when she bumped against the table or the edge of the benches. At one time, she said the heavy shoes which Charity provides hurt her feet, and she took them off. The nurses made two patients put them on her again, and when she did it several times and fought against having them on, I counted seven people at her at once trying to put the shoes on. 
The old woman then tried to lie down on the bench, but they pulled her up again. It sounded so pitiful to hear her cry. Oh, give me a pillow and pull the covers over me. I'm so cold. At this, I saw Miss Group sit down on her and run her cold hands over the woman's face and down inside the neck of her dress. At the old woman's cries, she laughed savagely, as did the other nurses, and repeated her cruel action. That day, the old woman was carried away to another ward. Chapter 13 Choking and Beating Patients Miss Tilly Mayard suffered greatly from cold. One morning, she sat on the bench next to me and was livid with the cold. Her limbs shook and her teeth chattered. I spoke to the three attendants who sat with coats on at the table in the center of the floor. It is cruel to lock people up and then freeze them, I said. They replied she had on as much as any of the rest and she would get no more. Just then, Miss Mayer took a fit and every patient looked frightened. Miss Neville caught her in her arms and held her, although the nurses roughly said, Let her fall on the floor and it will teach her a lesson. Miss Neville told them what she thought of their actions, and then I got orders to make my appearance in the office. Just as I reached there, Superintendent Dent came to the door, and I told him how we were suffering from the cold and of Miss Mayard's condition. Doubtless I spoke incoherently, for I told of the state of the food, the treatment of the nurses and their refusal to give more clothing, the condition of Miss Mayard, and the nurses telling us, because the asylum was a public institution, we could not expect even kindness. Assuring him that I needed no medical aid, I told him to go to Miss Mayard. He did so. From Miss Neville and other patients, I learned what transpired. Miss Mayard was still in the fit, and he caught her roughly between the eyebrows, or thereabouts, and pinched until her face was crimson from the rush of blood to the head, and her senses returned. All day afterwards, she suffered from terrible headache and from that on, she grew worse. Insane? Yes, insane. And as I watched the insanity slowly creep over the mind that had appeared to be all right, I secretly cursed the doctors, the nurses, and all public institutions. Someone may say that she was insane at some time previous to her consignment at the asylum. Then if she were, was this the proper place to send a woman just convalescing? to be given cold baths, deprived of sufficient clothing, and fed with horrible food? On this morning, I had a long conversation with Dr. Ingram, the assistant superintendent of the asylum. I found that he was kind to the helpless in his charge. I began my old complaint of the cold, and he called Miss Grady to the office and ordered more clothing given the patients. Miss Grady said if I made a practice of telling it would be a serious thing for me, she warned me in time. Many visitors looking for missing girls came to see me. 
Miss Grady yelled in the door from the hall one day, Nellie Brown, you're wanted. I went to the sitting room at the end of the hall, and there sat a gentleman who had known me intimately for years. I saw by the sudden blanching of his face and his inability to speak that the sight of me was wholly unexpected and had shocked him terribly. In an instant, I determined, if he betrayed me as Nellie Bly, to say I had never seen him before. However, I had one card to play, and I risked it. With Miss Grady within touching distance, I whispered hurriedly to him, in language more expressive than elegant, Don't give me away. I knew by the expression of his eye that he understood, so I said to Miss Grady, I do not know this man. Do you know her? asked Miss Grady. No, this is not the young lady I came in search of, he replied in a strained voice. If you do not know her, you cannot stay here, she said, and she took him to the door. All at once, a fear struck me that he would think I had been sent there through some mistake and would tell my friends and make an effort to have me released. So I waited until Miss Grady had the door unlocked. I knew that she would have to lock it before she could leave, and the time required to do so would give me opportunity to speak. So I called. One moment, senor. He returned to me, and I asked out loud, Do you speak Spanish, senor? And then whispered, It's okay, I'm after an item. Keep still. No, he said with peculiar emphasis which I knew meant that he would keep my secret. People in the world can never imagine the lengths of days to those in asylums. They seemed never-ending, and we welcomed any event that might give us something to think about as well as talk of. There is nothing to read, and the only bit of talk that never wears out is conjuring up delicate food that they will get as soon as they get out. Anxiously, the hour was watched for when the boat arrived to see if there were any new unfortunates to be added to our ranks. When they came and were ushered into the sitting room, the patients would express sympathy to one another for them and were anxious to show them little marks of attention. Hall 6 was the receiving hall, so that was how we saw all newcomers. Soon after my advent, a girl called Urina Littlepage was brought in. She was, as she'd been born, silly, and her tender spot was, as with many sensible women, her age. She claimed 18 and would grow very angry if told to the contrary. The nurses were not long in finding this out, and then they teased her. Urena, said Miss Grady, the doctors say you are 33 instead of 18, and the other nurses laughed. They kept up this until the simple creature began to yell and cry, saying she wanted to go home and that everybody treated her badly. After they'd gotten all the amusement out of her they wanted and she was crying, they began to scold and tell her to keep quiet. She grew more hysterical every moment until they pounced upon her and slapped her face and knocked her head in a lively fashion. This made the poor creature cry the more, and so they choked her. Yes, actually choked her. Then they dragged her out to the closet, and I heard her terrified cries hush into smothered ones. 
After several hours' absence, she returned to the sitting room, and I plainly saw the marks of their fingers on her throat for the entire day. This punishment seemed to awaken their desire to administer more. They returned to the sitting room and caught hold of an old gray-haired woman, whom I have heard addressed both as Mrs. Grady and Mrs. O'Keefe. She was insane, and she talked almost continually to herself and those near her. She never spoke very loud, and at the time I speak of was sitting harmlessly chattering to herself. They grabbed her, and my heart ached as she cried, For God's sake, ladies, don't let them beat me. Shut up, you hussy, said Miss Grady as she caught the woman by her gray hair and dragged her shrieking and pleading from the room. She was also taken to the closet, and her cries grew lower and lower, and then ceased. The nurses returned to the room, and Miss Grady remarked that she had settled the old fool for a while. I told some of the physicians of the occurrence, but they did not pay any attention to it. One of the characters in Hall 6 was Matilda, a little old German woman who... I believe, went insane over the loss of money. She was small and had a pretty pink complexion. She was not much trouble, except at times. She would take spells when she would talk into the steam heaters or get up on a chair and talk out the windows. In these conversations, she railed at the lawyers who had taken her property. The nurses seemed to find a great deal of amusement in teasing the harmless old soul. One day I sat beside Miss Grady and Miss Group and heard them tell her perfectly vile things to call Mrs. McCartan. After telling her to say these things, they would send her to the other nurse, but Matilda proved that she, even in her state, had more sense than they. I cannot tell you, it is private, was all she would say. I saw Miss Grady, on a pretense of whispering to her, spit in her ear. Matilda quietly wiped her ear and said nothing. Chapter 14 Some Unfortunate Stories by this time I had made the acquaintance of the greater number of the 45 women in Hall 6. Let me introduce a few. Louise, the pretty German girl who I have spoken of formerly as being sick with fever, had the delusion that the spirits of her dead parents were with her. I have gotten many beatings from Miss Grady and her assistants, she said, and I am unable to eat the horrible food they give us. I ought not to be compelled to freeze for want of proper clothing. Oh, I pray nightly that I might be taken to my papa and mamma. One night, when I was confined at Bellevue, Dr. Field came. I was in bed and weary of the examination. At last I said, I'm tired of this, I will talk no more. Won't you? he said angrily. I'll see if I can make you. With this he laid his crutch on the side of the bed, and getting up on it, he pinched me very severely in the ribs. I jumped up straight in bed and said, What do you mean by this? I want to teach you to obey when I speak to you, he replied. If I could only die and go to Papa. 
When I left, she was confined to bed with a fever, and maybe by this time she has her wish. There is a French woman confined in Hall 6, or was during my stay, whom I firmly believe to be perfectly sane. I watched her and talked with her every day, excepting the last three, and I was unable to find any delusion or mania in her. Her name is Josephine Despro, if that is spelled correctly, and her husband and all her friends are in France. Josephine feels her position keenly. Her lips tremble and she breaks down crying when she talks of her helpless condition. How did you get here? I asked. One morning as I was trying to get breakfast, I grew deathly sick and two officers were called in by the woman of the house and I was taken to the station house. I was unable to understand their proceedings and they paid little attention to my story. Doings in this country were new to me and before I realized it, I was lodged as an insane woman in this asylum. When I first came, I cried that I was there without hope of release, and for crying, Miss Grady and her assistants choked me until they hurt my throat, for it has been sore ever since. A pretty young Hebrew woman spoke so little English I could not get her story except as told by the nurses. They say her name is Sarah Fishbaum, and that her husband put her in the asylum because she had a fondness for other men than himself. Granting that Sarah was insane, and about men, let me tell you how the nurses tried to cure her. They would call her up and say, Sarah, wouldn't you like to have a nice young man? Oh, yes, a young man is all right, Sarah would reply in her few English words. Well, Sarah, wouldn't you like us to speak a good word to some of the doctors for you? Wouldn't you like to have one of the doctors? And then they would ask her which doctor she preferred and advise her to make advances to him when he visited the hall. I had been watching and talking with a fair-complexioned woman for several days, and I was at a loss to see why she had been sent there. She was so sane. Why did you come here? I asked her one day after we'd indulged in a long conversation. I was sick, she replied. Are you sick mentally? I urged. Oh no, what gave you such an idea? I'd been overworking myself and I broke down. Having some family trouble and being penniless and nowhere to go, I applied to the commissioners to be sent to the poorhouse until I would be able to work but they do not send poor people here unless they are insane, I said. Don't you know there are only insane women, or those supposed to be so, sent here? I knew after I got here that the majority of these women were insane, but then I believed them when they told me this place was the place they sent all the poor who applied for aid as I had done. How have you been treated? I asked. Well, so far I've escaped a beating, although I have been sickened at the sight of many and the recital of more. When I was brought here, they went to give me a bath, and the very disease for which I needed doctoring and from which I was suffering made it necessary that I should not bathe. But they put me in, and my sufferings were increased greatly for weeks thereafter. A Mrs. McCartney, whose husband is a tailor, seems perfectly rational and has not one fancy. 
Mary Hughes and Mrs. Louise Shands showed no obvious traces of insanity. One day, two newcomers were added to our list. The one was an idiot, Carrie Glass, and the other was a nice-looking German girl. Quite young, she seemed, and when she came in, all the patients spoke of her nice appearance and apparent sanity. Her name was Margaret. She told me she'd been a cook and was extremely neat. One day, after she had scrubbed the kitchen floor, the chambermaids came down and deliberately soiled it. Her temper was aroused and she began to quarrel with them. An officer was called and she was taken to the asylum. How can they say I am insane, merely because I allowed my temper to run away with me, she complained. Other people will not shut up for crazy when they get angry. I suppose the only thing to do is to keep quiet and so avoid the beatings which I see others get. No one can say one word about me. I do everything I'm told and all the work they give me. I am obedient in every respect, and I do everything to prove to them that I am sane. One day, an insane woman was brought in. She was noisy, and Miss Grady gave her a beating and blacked her eye. When the doctors noticed it and asked if it was done before she came there, the nurses said it was. While I was in Hall 6, I never heard the nurses address the patients except to scold or yell at them, unless it was to tease them. They spent much of their time gossiping about the physicians and about the other nurses in a manner that was not elevating. Miss Grady nearly always interspersed her conversation with profane language, and generally began her sentences by calling on the name of the Lord. The names she called the patients were of the lowest and most profane type. One evening she quarreled with another nurse. While we were at supper about the bread, and when the nurse had gone out, she called her bad names and made ugly remarks about her. In the evenings, a woman, whom I supposed to be head cook for the doctors, used to come up and bring raisins, grapes, apples, and crackers to the nurses. Imagine the feelings of the hungry patients as they sat and watched nurses eat which was to them a dream of luxury. One afternoon, Dr. Dent was talking to a patient, Mrs. Turney, about some trouble she'd had with a nurse or matron. A short time after, we were taken down to supper, and this woman who had beaten Miss Turney, and of whom Dr. Dent spoke, was sitting at the door of our dining room. Suddenly, Mrs. Turney picked up her bowl of tea, and rushing out of the door, flung it at the woman who had beat her. There was some loud screaming, and Mrs. Turney was returned to her place. The next day, she was transferred to the rope gang, which is supposed to be composed of the most dangerous and most suicidal women on the island. At first, I could not sleep, and did not want to so long as I could hear anything new. The night nurses may have complained of the fact. At any rate, one night they came in and tried to make me take a dose of some mixture out of a glass to make me sleep. I told them I would do nothing of the sort, and they left me, I hoped, for the night. My hopes were vain, for in a few minutes they returned with a doctor, the same that received us on our arrival. He insisted that I take it, but I was determined not to lose my wits, even for a few hours. When he saw that I was not to be coaxed, 
he grew rather rough, and he said he'd wasted too much time with me already, that if I did not take it, he would put it into my arm with a needle. It occurred to me that if he put it into my arm, I could not get rid of it, but if I swallowed it, there was one hope, so I said I would take it. I smelt it, and it smelt like laudanum, and it was a horrible dose. No sooner had they left the room and locked me in, I tried to see how far down my throat my finger would go, and the chloral was allowed to try its effect elsewhere. I want to say that the night nurse, Burns, in Hall 6, seemed very kind and patient to the poor, afflicted people. The other nurses made several attempts to talk to me about lovers and asked me if I would not like to have one. They did not find me very communicative on the, to them, popular subject. Once a week, the patients are given a bath, and that is the only time they see soap. A patient handed me a piece of soap one day about the size of a thimble. I considered it a great compliment in her wanting to be kind, but I thought she would appreciate the cheap soap more than I, so I thanked her but refused to take it. On bathing day, the tub is filled with water, and the patients are washed, one after the other, without a change of water. This is done until water is really thick, and then it is allowed to run out and the tub is refilled without being washed. The same towels are used on all the women, those with eruptions as well as those without. The healthy patients fight for a change of water, but they are compelled to submit to the dictates of the lazy, tyrannical nurses. The dresses are seldom changed oftener than once a month. If the patient has a visitor, I have seen the nurses hurry her out and change her dress before the visitor comes in. This keeps up the appearance of careful and good management. The patients who are not able to take care of themselves get into beastly conditions, and the nurses never look after them, but order some of the patients to do so. For five days we were compelled to sit in the room all day. I never put in such a long time. Every patient was stiff and sore and tired. We would get in little groups on benches and torture our stomachs by conjuring up thoughts of what we would eat first when we got out. If I'd not known how hungry they were and the pitiful side of it, the conversation would have been very amusing. As it was, it only made me sad. When the subject of eating, which seemed to be the favorite one, was worn out, they used to give their opinions of the institution and its management. The condemnation of the nurses and the eatables was unanimous. As the days passed, Miss Tilly Mayard's condition grew worse. She was continually cold and unable to eat the food provided. Day after day, she sang in order to try to maintain her memory, but at last the nurse made her stop. I talked with her daily, and I grieved to find her grow worse so rapidly. At last, she got a delusion. She thought that I was trying to pass myself off for her, and that all the people who called to see Nellie Brown were friends in search of her, but that I, by some means, was trying to deceive them into the belief that I was the girl. I tried to reason with her, but found it impossible. So I kept away from her as much as possible, lest my presence should make her worse and feed the fancy. 
One of the patients, Mrs. Cotter, a pretty and delicate woman, one day thought she saw her husband coming up the walk. She left the line in which she was marching and ran to meet him. For this act, she was sent to the retreat. She afterwards said, The remembrance of that is enough to make me mad. For crying, the nurses beat me with a broom handle and jumped on me, injuring me internally so that I shall never get over it. Then they tied my hands and feet, and throwing a sheet over my head, twisted it tightly around my throat so I could not scream, and thus put me in a bathtub filled with cold water. They held me under until I gave up every hope and became senseless. At other times, they took hold of my ears and beat my head on the floor and against the wall. Then they pulled out my hair by the roots so that it will never grow in again. Mrs. Cotter here showed me proofs of her story, the dent in the back of her head and the bare spots where the hair had been taken out by the handful. I give her story as plainly as possible. My treatment was not as bad as I've seen others get in there, she said, but it has ruined my health, and even if I do get out of here, I will be a wreck. When my husband heard of the treatment given me, he threatened to expose the place if I was not removed, so I was brought here. I am well mentally now. All that old fear has left me, and the doctor has promised to allow my husband to take me home. I made the acquaintance of Bridget McGinnis, who seems to be sane at the present time. She said she was sent to a retreat for and put on the rope gang. The beating I got there, she said, was something dreadful. I was pulled around by the hair, held under the water until I strangled, and I was choked and kicked. The nurses would always keep a quiet patient stationed to the window to tell them when any of the doctors were approaching. It was hopeless to complain to the doctors, for they always said it was the imagination of our diseased brains. And besides, we would get another beating for telling. They would hold patients under the water and threaten to leave them to die if they did not promise not to tell the doctors. We would all promise, because we knew the doctors would not help us, and we would do anything to escape the punishment. After breaking a window, I was transferred to the lodge, the worst place on the island. It is dreadfully dirty in there, and the stench is awful. In the summer, the flies swarm the place. The food is worse than we get in other wards, and we were given only tin plates. Instead of the bars being on the outside, as in this ward, they are on the inside. There are many quiet patients there who have been there for years, but the nurses keep them to do the work. Among other beatings I got there, the nurses jumped on me once and broke two of my ribs. While I was there, a pretty young girl was brought in. She'd been sick and she fought against being put in that dirty place. One night, the nurses took her hand and, after beating her, held her naked in a cold bath. Then they threw her on her bed. When morning came, the girl was dead. The doctor said she died of convulsions, and that was all that was done about it. They inject so much morphine and chloral that the patients are made crazy. I've seen the patients wild for water from the effects of drugs, and the nurses would refuse it to them. I've heard women beg for a whole night for one drop, and it was not given them. 
I myself cried for water until my mouth was so parched and dry that I could not speak. I saw the same thing myself in Hall 7. The patients would beg for a drink before retiring, but the nurses, Miss Hart and the others, refused to unlock the bathroom that they might quench their thirst. Thanks for listening. Good night.